funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee. The Railway Children Episode 4 Dawn of the Diesel In the 1950s, the steam train was on its way out, giving way to the diesel train, a cleaner and faster option. The sush and the smoke and the hardship of the steam train made them less desirable to some. But many still have a fondness for the smell, the sound and the nostalgia of steam. Paddy Meehan wrote his poem, A Steam Driver's Lament, on the subject. A Steam Driver's Lament to drive a loco wasn't my gold. Oh, how I long for this. I worked and toiled and shoveled coal, saw nothing was amiss. Then came the day they passed me out. I felt I walked on air. I was now an engine driver. The watchword was beware. Progress shattered all my dreams. They went from steam to diesel. Now here I was starting out again with pen and chalk and easel. The love that once was shared with toil was now with shreds. This diesel was a monstrous thing. No heart, no soul, just dregs. Instead of coal and open air, for fumes and diesel oil, overloads and circuit breakers would make any man recoil. The fun is gone and I'm forlorn for other days and times. What would I give to drive again the steam train on the lines? At journey's end, I now look back and think of former mates, of men whose lives were so intertwined with schedules, times and dates. Products of our times we were, and yet a world apart. Please God, remember all of us when the Last excursion starts. I wrote it for uh, the Atlone Railway, 1851-2001, commemorating the 150th years of trains crossing the River Shannon. I remember going down with my father to um, the station on a Sunday when the train carrying the remains of the Achille Islanders that perished in Scotland, they were being transported by rail, and my father brought me down just to see it. That must have been a, a very strange time in history. I mean, you wouldn't have realised that history was in the making. I, I, didn't, I didn't really know. No, I didn't, no, didn't know. No. How old were you, do you think, then? Uh, I suppose I may be 10 or 12, I'm not sure now. And was your father on the railway? Oh, my father was all his life on the railway. Okay. Your grandfather? And my grandfather. Derek Kiernan, from the Little Museum of Memories, gives his thoughts on the switch to diesel. A lot of them said there that the diesel trains were were more powerful and they were a lot faster. They were able to get from A to B there uh, at a a quick speed there, the diesel. Well, they would have been a lot cleaner at the time than the locomotive there, yeah. But now they're, it's hard to know now with all this carbon uh, carbon emissions and all this thing, yeah. Well, the diesel train needs as much staff 
No, no, they didn't need as much as the locomotives, no. Yeah. No, no, all there was was a driver on the diesel locomotives. And then there was also the, the crew then that worked on the train, the tickets, the ticket people there, the inspectors. Billy Henshaw drove both steam and diesel trains during his time as a driver. I became a driver about a year before the steam finished in Athlone. It would be the end of the 1950s. I drove steam trains for about a year and maybe a year and a half and they would be very minor type of trains to be overload specials of goods and it, uh, mostly it was ballast trains uh, ballast trains were composed of trains of stone for for the permanent way for the actual sleepers uh, you'd get the train load of stone down in the Lakara quarry and you could be going anywhere could go up to Sligo Road up to that's all closed now to up be Tubber Curry, uh, Swinford, and up there, uh, up to Sligo. And in the Ballon Road branch, we were often there too. There was a branch railway from Clare Morris into Ballon Road. And all those little places, we went with the, the ballast trains. Then I had to learn how to become a diesel driver. And we were sent up to Inchicore. And we did a couple of weeks up there uh, learning to be driving the diesels. And uh, there were diesel locomotives that came from England. They weren't that good because the engines were big two-stroke engines and they were inclined to go on fire and the devil knows what. And, but uh, we had to get, get on with them. And to be very honest with you, you had a heater you had lights shining in front of you all along the railway and you had a little hot plate if you wanted to get a cup of tea I was bloody glad they came <laughs> <laughs> I was very glad they came because the hard work was gone then all the slogging and the hard work we did I did 15 years as a fireman and that was tough going and I retired at 60 years of age I failed my medical because I had a arthritis in the hip and I had a, an operation and it wasn't a success. So when I went in for my final medical, the chief medical officer said to me, she was a lady, and she said, Billy, I'm afraid I'm going to have to tell you that you failed your medical. She says, they're not accepting Drivers on him are more with plastic hips and that are not a success. So I said to her, well, doctor, says I, that's the best bit of news I heard for a long time. I'm that delighted now, says I, I'm going to go down and I'm going to get a couple of pints for myself down at the nearest pub. So I got out and I went home on the train. I signed off that evening and that was the end of my railway career. CIE provided houses for many railway workers in different parts of the town. Paddy Meehan lived in one of these areas. I lived in Bailock. They used to sometimes refer to it as Little Birmingham. They were all, they were, they were all family, all, nearly all railway families there. And why would you call it Little Birmingham? <laughs> because coal, 
engine drivers. That was it. Yeah, they provided a lot of a lot of accommodation for their men. After passing across the canal, going out the gold all on the right hand side, they were all railway cottages owned by the railway and uh, it was all railway men that were in them. Of course they're all bought out by people now for years, but they were all railway cottages. One woman who spent many years living in the railway cottages is Mrs. Devine. Where are you from, Mrs. Devine? I'm from Clonastra. Is that near Clonmacnoys? Yes, over in it. All right. And tell me something, how old are you, Mrs. Devine? Well, I'm 99. You were born in 1917? Yes, I was. You were born near Clonmacnoys and you came to live in Athlone? Yes. Where did you live in Athlone? I lived in that one up over, yes, from Marilla Cottages, that's where I'm from. And what was your husband's name? John Devine. John Devine. Yeah. And he worked on the railway? He worked on the railway, very well, like John too. They provided a lot of accommodation along the railway itself then, because gangers that would be out in very isolated places, the men that looked after the rails and, and the, the permanent way, they provided little houses for them along the railway as well. What about us, the crossings? Oh, yeah. They were gatehouses. Of course, all the gatehouses now, the gates, they're all worked from Atlone now. They're opened electronically from, from Atlone, level crossing gates. And there'd be a good few of them down the Mio branch, level crossing gates. Now, they're all worked electronically now, opened and closed from Atlone. But the time when I joined the railway, every one of them had a little house there. And there was a railwayman or somebody employed as a gatekeeper. And they'd be employed for the whole 24 hours. They were responsible for opening and closing them gates for the train. And it was a signal, it would be a distant signal from all them gates. It would be maybe less than a quarter of a mile out each side of the railway. And when you'd open the gates, the signal would be pulled down. Sean Brown from the Castlery Railway Museum tells us about the evolution of the delivery of goods from the time his Uncle Joe ran a delivery business in the 1950s to present day. I was um, reared with an uncle uh, and... Uh, his job was delivering stuff around the town. So that meant that he was bringing me and the horse and car down to the station. And that's how I got the interest. You're talking about 1955-56, and uh, steam was just on the way out. And I, just, I remember the tail end of it, but it had, a, had a, a, a great importance for me at the time. How has the delivery of goods evolved over the years? Well, uh, the earliest memory I have is with the horse and cart, you know, from the station. And they used to bring in that time I remember the, all the wagons came in as far as the goods store and uh, you, they actually they put a plate out in front of the wagon as far as the platform in the goods store and that's where the goods were bought off and, and to a higher level into the, and to the back of the, uh, the horse and cart first then the next part then was when that disappeared then you would you go around with the Thames van and then eventually they got rid of goods altogether you know from being delivered locally they got out of the goods completely in Castlery and Ballyhonest, and they started centralising to places like Westport and Ballinay. It went over then to trucks, and then until about 1972, they stopped bringing cattle. Then they had cattle trucks. See, the road is kept taking over. But I don't think the railway company itself 
had the same interest in goods like Guinness has now has gone nearly 10 years off the railway and that was all transported that was the last item to go now they're back a bit now to uh, timber, timber trains and they also have a, a goods train which actually goes down as far as Bellinay and that goes a few, three or four times a week which is great you know, at the present time. Jean Farrell remembers horse and cart deliveries to shops in Athlone. One of the big functions of the trains, as well as bringing passengers, was delivering goods. We lived in 4 O'Connell Street, which was just opposite what used to be PJ Bannon's pub, and three doors up from us on the right was McCarrick's Wholesalers. Their McCarrick's van went all around the Midlands delivering to shops, so they had to get their goods, and these goods always came by train. So part of our lives was the CIE horse and cart, we used to call it. It was a very big cart. It would come from the railway station two or three times a day to O'Connell Street and park outside McCarrick's, and all the goods from it would be lifted into McCarrick's and then the horse and cart would go off again. It was very, very much part of our childhood. Galvin's Bank was a delivery depot which handled all kinds of freight and attracted many curious scallywags over the years. We used to go over there when we were young there, yeah. Well, this is, uh, it wouldn't have been too long before it was closed down, yeah, but we used to go over there. For what? To go over looking at the trains. <laughs> was there anything else in Galvin's Bank? Ah, well, there was sheds there, yeah. There was material in it. There was bags of cement. There was all all sorts of material that they were stored there that they were transporting from one station to another there, yeah. And then across from Galvin Shed, then you had Hamel Lane and you had Textile. And they were also transporting oil and, and, and scrap there by rail at that time. And of all the trains you've seen, Derek, what one would stick out in your mind? But of all I've seen there, um, I'd say the sugar beet train there, yeah. Why? Because sugar was a big shortage on us in the batteries. We used to chase after there to try and get cups of sugar out. And how do you get cups of sugar out of it? Well, we used to try and run, and, and if the train stopped in Galvin Shed, we'd climb up on, on the carriage there to try and get out cups of sugar. The best part of the time we were always caught. <laughs> <laughs> and how was, what would the sugar be like? Would the sugar be in a bag? Or was the sugar loose? No, the sugar was loose on the carriages, yeah. The sugar beach, yeah. And would that be like sugar that we see today? Or is that like a, a turnip or something? Well, no, it'd be the same as the sugar we're using today, yeah. The goods train would go along with the cement and the... Yeah, timber. And timber and, and the oil and mm, the scrap. Yeah, and Guinness. And there was also a brewery in Athlone there. That was situated there at the back of Dathlon Castle. They used to bring a lot of the stuff there used to be brought by boat and then they started moving it by rail then. The shed was closed down in the 60s. But they used, a lot of it used to be brought by rail. Some of it used to be dropped off there at the Great Southern Station. A lot of the, the material. When so the how would it get to the Great Southern Station? It would have been brought by the, the freight trains. So the freight train will go across to the Great Southern Station as well hmm. and stop there. Yeah. Well, it would have been after the 80s when they, when they had knocked Galvin Shed up there. Yeah, that that was decommissioned back in the in the in the earlier mid 80s, I think. There, Galvin Shed it was all knocked then shortly after. 
July 1984, they were closing down the the, the, the bank area of it. And I was only relevant to just there to record it. I have photographs with Johnny Butler taking the locomotive of it. So you remember Galton's Bank being closed down? I, 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 I do, because the engine shed was there, and they also had a locomotive, um, you know, to turn table there on the bank as well. It was a fine setup. All them steam locomotives, yeah, they only could go the one way, and you had to actually turn the engine around. And they were so well balanced, if the, the engine was properly put onto the turntable, a child could nearly push it around. And then they had dormitories at some place where people used to stay there the night. But what I think most about it is the fellas that worked on the trains were so kind to me. I think about Pecky Harney and I think about um, Mickey Daly and uh, Eamon Lacken and all them fellas. They were so kind and they were so nice, you know. And there was a fellow called Tig Curley and I could keep going on. I mean, it, it becomes a, a litany after sales after a while and you go thinking of them, you know. Yeah. You know, but Paddy Meehan is... is uh, I have, still have contact with him and all, and I, do, I love calling to see Paddy when I'm up in that lawn, you know. Lovely gentleman. And, uh, like, the, um, it's all right looking back on steam, uh, you know, but God bless and save them fellas had terrible hardship articles of that, you know. It was tough going. In 1984, another major change occurred on the railway when, over 130 years after it first opened to the public, the Midland Great Western Station on the conic side of town closed its doors. The Great Southern and Western Station, now known as the Great Southern Station, or simply Athlone Railway Station, reopened to the public as the town passenger station. While the move was logical, the old station is remembered with nostalgia for its grandeur and the evolution of the railway. So it's not surprising that many people would have preferred it remained open. It was a shame to close it. God, it was brilliant. Instead of, because there wasn't enough room for the buses, like for turning, and if they took over where the child centre is and all that area, we'd say where the Gentex closed up and ran a It had been a great bus station. Instead of going over the town, because we're lost for it. We love that station. It's a shame. John Butler was working on the day the West Signal Cabin closed. I was the, the last person to operate the West Cabin, the Signal Cabin in that cabin, That Signal Cabin closed in 1984, and there was a new electrical system put in. The old mechanical cabin was closed down, and it was what we called the CTC. And I remember the day well, it was a Sunday, at 12.30, when the last train left for Galway, the signal cabin, west cabin was closed. Tell us a little bit how you felt. Well, it was, you were moving from the old to the new, you were used to operating 62 lever frame cabin, complicated system. But you were going around to operate it on a switchboard, complete different operation than what you were used to. So it was very exciting because it was, it was new technology. And you're getting a first hand uh, being involved in the whole operation of new technology. Why did the MGWR uh, station close? Well, the, the major problem for the Midland Railway Station was very little uh, 
car parking where is the area for buses and that so there was a, a CIE devised a plan that they would interconnect uh, the bus and rail together in the one location and that was the reason that they moved from the Midland station to the Sunderland station Sunderland station was closed in 1929 and was reopened in uh, 1984 in my opinion was it was, it, it was the best thing on the basis of uh, you could not develop the old Midland station it's up in height there's no ground available to develop the Midland station there would be no car parking available but it's natural like anything else when you have something on one side of the town where you have a river people feel a major loss the people on the west side of the town felt it was a major loss to them that they station that they uh, that served them throughout their lifehood was now gone and they would have to cross over to the lesser side of the town to be able to access public transport and, and trains uh, or buses but it was uh, it was a move in the right direction because the Midland station had not the, the, the ground facility to develop and the southern station has been developed into a fine station with the extension of the new bus uh, station beside it and a level of car parking within that area not only uh, within the station area itself but also within the fair green and the new shopping centre so like there's ample accessibility of car parking and it's it's very centrally located. When the GW and WR Freight Station reopened to the public, were you there on that day? I was. What can you remember about that? Well, I can remember this station at the time, it was very bare. In the after years, it was more developed and more investment put into it. And there was a lot of pride in move because number of station managers there but particularly Margaret Larkin uh, had great pride in the station and along with the staff in which I was involved we would ensure that the station was looking well for most seasons I always ensured at Christmas that it was very well decorated uh, in the spring we would plant the flowers we maintained the flowers for the summer in the station and we set out a great standard in the station because we felt we were responsible for people's first approach of what they thought of at Lowen when they entered at Lowen when they came by train we wanted them to we wanted to show off our town uh, and the station um, had has received numerous awards for for the high standard of the station. And this is something we were very, very proud of. When it was closed? It was used as a goods depot. And you had you have a building at the end of it, uh, which was the old goods store. 
that whole goods store has been developed into a control center. And that center controls the railway, the signaling system from Panelislow to Galway, Galway to Ennis, and also from the Crockery to Westport and Banana. It also has a crossing control centre. And the crossing control centre, when you were going along the, right, the road and you see these automatic gates, the operator for them is in that building, operating all the gates, the automatic crossings to the west. That could be the crossing going into Edgerstown on the Ballymahan Road. The next time you're going through there, and you're stopped. Remember, the guy that's operating that is sitting in that good store building in the zone. I give him a wave. <laughs> or her. Or her, yes, there is both operators. Gerard O'Brien gives us a quick recap about the history of the two stations. So you had the Midland Great Western Railway Station on the Connacht side of Athlone from 1851 and serving there right up to 1985. Now, until 1927, it was in huge competition with the Great Southern and Western Station, which had come here in 1859 and had its station, which is still affectionately known as the Southern Station, or it's now the main railway station for the town, but it was known as the Southern Station because it belonged to the Great Southern and Western Railway. That station... Uh, operated independently from 1859 till 1927. So that went to arbitration and uh, they decided to split the takings between the two companies. In 1927, the goods for both lines came in at the Southern Station and all passenger traffic was transferred to the Connaught side. And that was the way it was till 1985 when uh, because of the condition, I think, of the platform in the Midland Great Western Station on the Connaught side, they knew that great work was needed. It probably would have meant closing down the station. They had the benefit of having an, another fine station building already in place, so they were able to improve that and open it then uh, and let it become the main railway station for that loan. So th that was really it in a nutshell. On the next episode of The Railway Children, we hear about the rejuvenation of the railway, the 150th anniversary of the railway in Athlone, and we host a railway reunion tea party for all the contributors previously heard on the series. The Railway Children Presented by Ursula Ledwith Produced and edited by Amanda Gunning Sound engineer Kyle McCallum Music by the Behan family The contributors to this episode were Paddy Meehan, Derek Kiernan, Billy Henshaw, Sean Brown, Jean Coyle Farrell and John Butler Special thanks to Castlereagh Railway Museum Athlone Down Memory Lane 
on Athlone Community Radio. Funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee.